Cool. Okay, so uh, I'm going to tell a quick story about a guy who lived on my couch for a period of time, and then we're going to jump in. It's going to tie in, I promise. So out of high school, uh, I wasn't quite in college because I did kind of the bum thing for a little while, bummed around, got in adventures, that kind of thing. So it wasn't really college years, but you get the idea. I was post-high school. I lived in this house in Dallas, and, uh, and I had a roommate, and my roommate's name was Foulball. Uh, I literally do not know his name other than Foulball. Everyone in his life called him foul ball because when he was a kid, he caught a foul ball at a Rangers game. And from that day forward, everyone called him foul ball. So I've tried to like find him on Facebook because he was the most interesting guy ever. And I wonder, like he was like a tagger, like he would go and tag things. And so he like spray paint stuff. He had his own like special tag. And so I was looking for his tag when I'm in like rail yards or in dark alleys. I'm like, oh, it's foul ball's tag. Um, <laughs> But uh, Foulball was awesome, but I don't, know, I don't know his real name. So Foulball, if you're podcasting and listening to this, hey, man, reach out. Reach out, man. Let me know who you are. Uh, so Foulball lived at the house with me, and we, this house was awful. Like, it was a disaster. It was just a horrible house uh, as far as, like, we just were really, really dirty. Like, really dirty. The guy's name was Foulball, one of my roommates. The other side of the house, so me and Foulball were on one side. The other side of the house had fleas. Like, really bad fleas. Like, we would, we got bug bomb, like the flea bug bombs, and we would set them off in those guys' bedrooms. Like, they would clear out, and we'd set them off and close the doors. And the fleas, like, built an immunity to the bug bomb fumes, and they just became super fleas. And so we just wouldn't go. Like, Paul, one of my other roommates, lived in that room, but we just didn't go near Paul's room and stuff. And, like, whenever he came home, he had to, like, decontaminate and take all his clothes off and put him in his room and change into scrubs. Anyway. Uh, it was sad. So we had this guy, though. There was a homeless guy who slept on our couch pretty regularly. Um, and the thing about the homeless guy that slept on our couch is I never knew his name because he was never awake. Like, never. Like, in the entire time I lived there where he was on our couch in the living room, and I think he was a friend of Foulball's, uh, he, he, just, he never woke up. And there were literal times where I would, like, like, I'd, like, go visit my parents, like, get a healthy meal one day or something like that. They'd be like, oh, so tell me about your roommates. I'd be like, well, foul ball is this, and Paul's covered in fleas. And then there's the homeless guy on the couch. And I remember, like, one time being like, I, I, don't, I don't know if he's actually alive. <laughs> like, I've never seen him, like, only, I've seen him in, like, different positions, but he is, all, like, when I am up and, like, walking back through the living room, it's like, oh, man, I sure hope I get to have a conversation with this guy one day. That'd be awesome. Talk to him, get his name, like just check his pulse and make sure he's alive because he would just sleep there. So, uh, you know, whenever he was there, and it was a short season, maybe a couple of months off and on, sometimes his body would disappear and then it would be back and be in different positions. But every time I would walk through, he was just always passed out asleep on the couch. I know he was alive because he stole my DVDs. So outside of that, uh, DVDs are what you used to watch movies on. Um, <clears throat> So there was this guy, right, who just was dead. The church that we're talking about in Sardis is a dead church, man. They are just, they're dead. And, and they're going to really get called out in that. And as they get called out in that, uh, I think we have to lean into that. And we have to lean into, man, where are we in that journey? Where are we in our spiritual life? Are we dry? Are we dying? Are we thriving? Are we growing? Um, that's where we're going. That's what we're looking at. So let's jump in. Revelation chapter 3 and Jesus calls out to the church of Sardis in the first six verses of chapter three. And we're going to throw them up on the screen too if that's, if that's easiest for you. So Revelation chapter three, verses one and two, here we go. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So real quick, drive-by commentary for this. Basically, that title is Jesus talking about how he is in control over the spirits of the world, he is in control over the churches of the world, that Jesus has all power and authority over Christian things and non-Christian things, and that all power for Jesus then says, look back down on it, the rest of this verse, I know your works. He's talking to Sardis. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Okay, Jesus does not hold back with Sardis. Uh, all the other letters so far that we've been, we've been tracking through in Revelation, there's, there's this call where Jesus will pick a church and he'll really uh, address some issues of that church. But all the other letters, he really slow plays it. You know, he, Jesus will say some compliments, you know, say things like, man, you guys are so faithful, so obedient, but you've really lost sight of your first love. And so then he gives them this real, you know, heavy challenge. Or he'll say, man, you guys are so loving and so enthusiastic, but you've compromised your theology. And so he kind of slow plays it and he gives them some compliments and then he takes a sharp left turn and says, but this is what I have against you. With Sardis, that doesn't happen. Right out the gate, this is a church that has a reputation Right? Imagine them receiving this letter. They have this reputation. They're known for being such a great church, such a great church. And Jesus says, yeah, I know your reputation, but you're dead. I know what people think you are, but I, Jesus, knower of all things, hold all things together, all-powerful Jesus, I know you, you're dead. That is scary. That's a scary thing. And let me make an observation here. Let me make a let me make a point. Let me pull up some truth and show us something here. Um, are you ready? You can't fake out Jesus. You can't fake out Jesus. It just in verse 1 and 2 of Revelation 3, Jesus says, Man, I know your reputation, but I know who you are. I can, I can do my best to fake you guys out, right? To put on a good face and to, to, to be what I think the people in, in the congregation I work with think I should be, and I can put on masks, I can do my best to fake out my wife, I can do my best to fake out uh, my supervisors and my boss, you can do your best to, to fake out your friends and your family and your coworkers and the people around you. We become professional mask wearers. We've just become professional mask wearers. I mean, even, even social media, all of social media is this exercise in let me put my best foot forward. Let me present myself in a way that's attractive or my life or my lifestyle and we, we compare ourselves and, and that's what we put. Let me think of the, the most thoughtful thing. Or the, and so that's what we project because that's what we want other people to see. We live in a society where we have just mastered the art of mask wearing and we fake ourselves out too. I mean, we can fool ourselves and we certainly try to. And we try to convince ourselves and tell ourselves, no, we're not, no, we're fine. Look at that person. I, I, can, I can belittle somebody else in my mind and in my heart, and I can say, well, that person stinks. That per I'm doing way better than them. Makes me feel better. I don't have to deal with actual issues, actual hurt, actual places in my heart and life and soul that are dying, that are headed towards death. But instead, I can just fake, I'm doing fine, I'm good. We cannot fake out Jesus. You cannot fake out the God of the universe. That's scary, but I think there is also something really comforting because of who our Jesus is. And Sardis couldn't do that either, right? Sardis is seen for who they are, and they're spiritually dead. This is a church who's spiritually dead. In verse two, it says, wake up and strengthen what remains 
and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Man, this is so relevant for us to hear. Um, what I want to do is I want to back up and look at what the context of Sardis was happening 2,000 years ago. So real quick, 2,000 years ago when this prophecy was given to Sardis, uh, let me let you in a little bit, nerd it up for a second on who they are. They're the capital city of Lydia. They were known for their defenses. It was kind of known as this place early on in its existence that was just impregnable, right? It was just this impenetrable fortress of a city. No one could take it. Um, they were confident, overconfident. Uh, they were comfortable. It was a wealthy capital city. Uh, the, the city that we talked about last week, Thyatira, was, was very close. It was in the same country of this, and they were a wealthy city. This was an even wealthier city, uh, powerful, had it all together, but some things had happened in their history. One of them was this guy, Cyrus, king of the Medo-Persian army. He snuck into their city, and he invaded it. And he snuck in by going through these secret mountain passageways to get into this, you know, just this impenetrable fortress of a city. And he snuck in his army through these secret path pathways in the mountains. And so in doing that, he would trickle his soldiers in, and then he wiped out the city from the inside out. And so that is in their recent history of, of having all their things together and being overconfident and then being destroyed. Also, 50 to 60 years before this was written, there was this massive earthquake in AD 17 that really rocked the city. And so because of it, they actually weren't the thriving metropolis capital city that they once were, but the city had the facade of that. And they were still living in these glory years of, well, man, we used to be this and we're just gonna project this and, and yeah, we're not as impenetrable as we thought and we're not as rock solid as we thought but we're gonna project this. The church in Sardis was taking its cues from the city in the same way, and Jesus tells them. He tells them in Revelation 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, it, Jesus says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus, see, here in verse three, appears to be even referencing the history that this church would have known so well and how their city got sacked. He will sneak in and they won't know what happened. They won't know what hit them. They were a dead and dying church. And Jesus is coming to either prune them or to snuff them out. So is there hope for them? So look, look at the next couple of verses. There's always hope for them. That's just great about our God. Verse four and five. Read with me. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Man, there is hope. There is a remnant of life. This is this beautiful, this, this hard critique and, and being called out, but then this beautiful remnant of hope that there are still some in there. There's still some limbs that have life. There's still some that I will go before my father and claim. And Jesus makes some promises here I want us to, to hold on to and look at real quick. So real briefly, I want us to not skip over. Anytime, anytime you're reading scripture and you see promises of God, man, highlight those things, get a tattoo, make extra effort to be, man, look at these. You have a lot of tattoos, um, which is fine. We're cool with that here at Christ Chapel. We love tattoos. Um, do you have a tattoo, Josh? Oh, me either. So hypocritical. Well, let's get matching tattoos. Afterward, we'll get them afterward. Matching tattoos. Think about what we should get. Okay, good. Uh, all right, sorry. Promises of God. This is more important. Uh, verse four, they will walk with Jesus, right? So this idea, if they wake up, 
If they wake up, if they repent, if they, we're gonna unpack what that looks like, but if they wake up, there's this promise of God, they will walk with Jesus in relationship with Jesus. That is a powerful promise. Verse five, another promise. They will be made righteous, right? So in, in verse five, we see the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And that is a reference Whenever you see white in scripture, white garments, it's this reference of purity and righteousness given to people who don't deserve it, clearly. But God's righteousness will be given to them. They will be made righteous. And then third promise, right there, we see it at the end of verse five. And I, Jesus says, will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And we have a promise. They have a promise for, before God they will have eternal security with Jesus, the, the author of all things who is over everything. They will have eternal security with him, Jesus Christ, as their advocate. That's powerful. Those are beautiful, beautiful promises. And so much is on the line. And are they listening as a church? So much is on the line. Are we listening? Revelation 3, 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. Uh, I want to apply this. So I want to take the, the rest of this time to sit on these six verses, see these promises, see the call out that the Lord calls them, identifies death and dying branches, dying limbs. This church is dying. These people are spiritually dead. What do we do with that? How do we return to that? Um, and so really we have to start with how do we come to a place where we are spiritually dead and dying? How do, how do we get there, right? How do we get in this place where, um, gosh, there's apathy, right? There's just apathy in our spiritual life. Um, it's not that we don't like God. We just don't get excited. We don't care. We don't, it's just going through the motions. There's coldness in our walk with Christ. It sneaks in. Our hearts have been hardened. Worship becomes this stale and joyless thing that we check off the box, right? We become numb to the things of God. Really, we're just going through the motions, and it's lifeless, and it's dry. And we, as believers, and those who are not believers in this room, and those who are struggling, and those who have wandered away, all struggle with this at some point, just like this church, this dryness that leads to just this spiritual death. And those are all symptoms, and those are all different numbness, apathy, uh, hardness of heart, those are all different ways to say this. We have disconnected from our God. Those are symptoms of us disconnecting from our God or maybe symptoms from never really being connected if that's where you're at tonight. If you're checking things out and you're not there and, and you're still in this process chasing God but you're like, I've never really connected to God. At Christ Chapel here on Sunday, uh, our pastor Cody uh, preached John 15. And, uh, and I'm going to read verses four and five to you. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's so applicable to this. And I love how, um, I love how the Bible all ties together. Uh, it's amazing. It's almost like it's divinely inspired or something. Uh, okay, John 15, verse four and five. This is what Jesus says to his disciples uh, right before he gets crucified. He says this. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine." Neither can you unless you abide in me. 
Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. This is how we die. This is how we dry up, right? We disconnect from this vine. We disconnect from the source of our life. We disconnect from God. And so what I want to do is I want to walk us through five reasons why we have disconnected from God. Uh, The first one is this. We disconnect from God because we are disappointed in God. Um, let, me, uh, let me unpack that a little bit. Uh, we are disappointed in God because there has maybe been pain and hurt in your life. Uh, you have, everyone has experienced some pain, but maybe you have experienced pain in some ways where uh, you're just angry. And, and really, rightfully so, there's some things that have happened to you uh, in your life that don't make sense um, and have created a lot of hurt in your life. Maybe there's just unmet expectations in your life. And you are angry with God and disappointed in God because where you thought you were going to be, who you thought you were going to be, what you thought your life was going to look like in obeying God isn't what's happening. You're frustrated, you're angry, and you're mad at God. Somewhere along the way, you have begun, and me, we have begun to believe a lie that God is not good because of that, right? We see this hurt, we see this evil and this injustice and this pain, and we believe this lie that God is not good because of that. And you have seen circumstances that are all horrible, and you've experienced real loss, and that is not good, but that does not define God. That does not define God. If that's you, Right? If, if that's you and you have disconnected from God because you're frustrated and you're disappointed and you're angry with this God who's supposed to be over thing, but why did he let this happen? I want to meet you where you're at tonight. Okay, I want to meet you where you're at. I'm not invalidating that pain and those circumstances. I'm not saying that that's not real and that's not worth hurting over, but I love you too much to leave you there. And we as a church love you too much to just leave you in that place. And so tonight, I'm telling you, yes, that pain is very real, but that does not define God, and it's time to come home, because God is good. And how do you reconcile a good God with maybe what a good God, a good and powerful God has allowed to go in your life? How do you reconcile that? One day at a time. And there's, that's not an easy answer. But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that pain is not lost on our God, okay? So that in your pain, that you feel, that you've experienced, that's legitimate. Our God knows pain. Look, our God knows pain. He loved us so much that he sacrificed his son. Our God knows pain. Our Savior, out of his great love for us, got stripped naked and humiliated and whipped and beaten and spit on and then crucified and hung on a tree fighting for every breath. I do not invalidate your pain. I want to meet you right where you're at. But that does not, our God knows pain. He's not an angry God smushing ants. He's a God who loves you enough and desires to bring healing and bring a relationship that will have healing enough to 
to go through immense, immense, immense amount of pain and injustice if you look at who Jesus was and the death that he suffered. Your disappointment or anger towards God is keeping you from the only hope you have of healing. You hear me? I love you. I know. I, and, I, and, and it's insensitive for me to say I know because I don't know what you've been through. But I know our God. And I know what he has been through. And our God is saying, I know. But your anger separating, disconnecting because you're mad at God is keeping you from the only thing that is going to bring healing. Love you. Come home. Second reason that you might have disconnected from God is because maybe you're not angry, but you're disillusioned with God. It's not disappointment. It's not maybe that you've been hurt necessarily. I mean, we've all been hurt, but maybe it's not that you're this, this level of pain that makes you angry. It's that you think you've tried the God thing and it just didn't work, right? You just weren't satisfied. And so the reality is many people have just disconnected because it's like, yeah, I've done that and I just didn't get, I feel like what other people were getting out of it, it just didn't really work for me. And so I did the Jesus thing and I, you know, when I was a kid, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you were uh, a part of a Christian family growing up or you had a grandparent that, that dragged you there and you're like, yeah, this just isn't for me. Like I'm not getting this. And so because of that, or maybe you know people, right? Maybe you know people who aren't here for that reason. You've got people you love and brothers and sisters in your life who aren't here because maybe they were a part of something. They're like, yeah, no, I'm, that's not really for me. And they've just become disillusioned with God and because of that, unplugged and separated themselves from God. Um, they've moved on. They've disconnected from God before they got to see fruit. And especially in the world of instant gratification and emotionalism that we live in, we disconnect because, ah, oh, no, this just isn't, it's just not hitting me right, and so we become so disillusioned. And so that's so often our story or stories of people we know. Yeah, they tried it, and it just it wasn't enough, and so we're disconnected. Third way that we disconnect, we're weary and exhausted. We're weary and exhausted. We are busy people, and we build our identity on being busy. Man, I wear my busyness like a badge. I make sure my staff sees it and my wife sees it. Certainly make sure my supervisor sees how busy and how much stuff I've got. And, and it's this badge of identity for me because of my own insecurities and because I want to find my worth in that. And so we just say yes and do all these things and stay busy. And somewhere along the way, we bought into this lie that you have to strive to bear fruit of this walk, right? And, and it's not about resting in him, it's about striving and doing and staying so busy. Um, we've deprioritized, if this is you, you've deprioritized Jesus on your list of things to do under your busyness because you're too exhausted to reconnect with the one who is the hope for rest and renewal. And so it's this awful, awful cycle for, for me and for anyone who disconnects out of just, man, I'm just too busy for Jesus. I'm too busy to prioritize coming and worshiping corporately, getting in the word of God, meeting with him daily. I'm just too, there's too many other things I'm doing and they're good things and so I just can't, and I deprioritize that and then I wonder why I'm so weary and exhausted. I'm deprioritizing the source of my renewal. Four, we disconnect because we are distracted and drifting. We're distracted and drifting. And I see this a lot in Sardis, and I see this a lot in our lives and a lot in our culture, certainly. Um, someone asked me the other day uh, if I believe in demon possession. Like, if I believe, like, is that still a thing, you know, that happens? 
and I do. Uh, I do believe in that. I, I believe there's spiritual warfare. I believe that that happens. Um, I, think, I don't think we see it in our culture. And so the follow-up question was like, man, why don't we see it in our culture very much? <clears throat> and uh, and, I, and I, I think I've seen it and gotten to see it in other cultures, in other countries, in third world countries and places. And it, it seems, if you've ever heard stories, like, man, it seems like something you hear about in other countries that maybe are less developed and those kind of things. Why don't we hear about that as much in America? I'm not saying we don't hear about it here, but we just don't seem to see it as much. <clears throat> here was my answer. And I think I believe this. We are possessed. I mean, if I were the enemy, right, trying to wreck the church, and, and I see the American culture of the American church, we are people who are possessed by screens. Man, I don't need a demon to possess me, right? Not that I could have a demon possess me because I believe the Holy Spirit lives in me, and, and so there's some protection there. But our culture is just possessed they're possessed with materialism. We constantly have a screen in front of us. We are so distracted, right? We are distracted to the things of God. We are disconnected from God simply because we're just, we're just seeking, we're seeking to plug into a million other things. The reason we're not plugged into the source, to the vine, to God, is because there's a million other things that I can plug into to try to satisfy me. None of them do, but there's a million other ways I can attempt to do that. How many of us, the first thing, I mean, we have our phones as our alarm clocks, and literally our day starts with our phone. And, and throughout the beginning of the day, it's what did I miss, and social media, and games, and entertainment, and news, and whatever it is, and it's intaking, and it's this screen, and our day ends. How many of us end with a phone in our hand as one of the last things we put down at the end of the night? Not just to set an alarm, but to see what else is going on, and we, we scroll, and we become possessed and distracted and we're disconnected from God and distracted and then we drift and then we just wake up three days later or three months later or whatever that looks like and it's like, man, I just, I filled my day, I filled my week with just all these worthless things that are going to dissolve all these images of other people's lives and we're missing life. It's so convicting for me and for our church, hopefully, Lord willing, that we would see that and say, man. And you know what happens, too? Uh, so you ever have the friend who, like, you haven't seen in a while and you kind of drifted a little bit? I've got friends like this in my life, especially because I used to live in Dallas and now I live in Fort Worth and I don't really see them that much. And so I don't, we don't really talk. And so what happens is I don't see them for a while and I don't talk and then it becomes like, oh, man, I should call Eric. Man, I love that guy. Like, I was a best man in his wedding we haven't talked in a while. I got I to gotta call Eric. I love him, and I do. But then I'm like, ah, I don't want to call him now. I don't have enough time. And I really feel like now, now if I call Eric, it's got to be this really epic conversation to catch up. And, and then it's got this, you know, I need, I need to, like, carve out an hour so I can really be a good friend. And, you know, what I really need, I just need to find some time to drive to Dallas and really see him and sit down and see how he's doing. And so what happens is I just don't do anything. And I just, we just kind of drift, and it's like, and it kind of builds and builds, and then it's like, oh, man, what, what would have been like a three-minute catch-up now because it's been a while turns into a 30-minute, and then it becomes like, oh, now I've got to like, it's like back rub level. Like, oh, now when I see him, i got to give him a back rub, and then i got to like cook food for him, and we got weird relationships with guys in Dallas. Um, but yeah, you get the idea, right? And that happens in my walk. That happens in our walk, Right? We get distracted, and we move away from this source of life and this relationship this relationship with Jesus Christ, and we drift from that, 
I think so often, then we pile on that drift, this misplaced guilt and misplaced shame of thinking, well, it's been so long. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to kind of stay drifting. And maybe I'll, I'll go to a worship service or I'll do something big. Or I'll do, and then that'll be a big, a big boost. And then God will really be pleased with my presence in that. And then I can kind of reset. It becomes this lie and this perpetual thing. Man, we're comfortable. We're distracted. There's no urgency in our worship or community. And we're disconnected from our God. Last, last way. And then we're going to start talking about Jesus. Show us how. Show us how this works. We identify it. Show us how to fix it. We're distracted and disconnected from our God because we don't know him. We don't know how. We don't know how to connect. It's not that we're angry, necessarily. It's not that we're even disillusioned, necessarily. And maybe it's not even that we're distracted. It's just we don't know how to connect to him. We don't know how to get in our Bible and study the word of God. We don't know how to get in the word of God and learn how to hear his voice. We don't know how and we don't fight to learn how. We don't take some urgent step to say, man, I want to fight to learn how to do this so that I might stay connected to God, so that I might hear him and know his face and know who he is and walk with him in relationship. And we don't, we don't do that and then we just rely on other people to do that. Right? We rely on other people to get us connected to God. And I love you, but, but you might rely on, well, I'm, Ben's going to study the word of God all week, and he's going he's gonna to connect me to God because he's going to study. And Josh, he's going to study the word of God, and he's going to connect. Or I can listen to podcast after podcast of these other men and women who are, who are plugged into the vine, and they are studying the word of God, and they are hearing from the Lord, and they are looking at who the Lord is, and they're connecting and walking with him. And I'm just going to sit, and I'm just going to try to get my connection vicariously through them. I love corporate worship. You should be a part of corporate worship. You should be a part of sitting under preaching of the word of God and, and men who, and women who are, who are learning and loving the word of God and teaching truth. You should find those men and women and sit under them and, and corporately worship. But if that is it, if you're just depending on that and you're not jumping into God's word on your own, then you will be malnourished spiritually. You will be malnourished spiritually. We love Wednesday nights. I love what Josh does on Sunday mornings at the Aardvark and what happens here on Sunday mornings. One of the reasons we talk about home groups so much is because that's at least another opportunity for you to get plugged into community where people know you and you know them and you're studying the word of God and you're in the word of God and you're growing in those places and you're, you're having to really wrestle with it yourself because we think it's life-giving. We think it's important for you. But so often we're just disconnected because we just don't know how to connect. And we don't fight to learn. We don't fight to, through some of the discipline and struggle of getting into scripture. Um, so let's look at how we do this. How do we get back? How do we change? What does the word of God say? This church is dying. There's so much dryness that we struggle with that we can identify why, but how? How do we get out of it? There are five verbs in Revelation chapter three, verses one through six that really address that Jesus gives us these verbs, these action statements to say, here's what you need to do. Church, there, you are dying. You are dying, you're dry. Take hold, there's still hope, there's still a remnant. Here's what you need to do. And the first two in verse two, uh, if, you, if you look, excuse me, I think it's in verse one, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. These two verbs, right off the bat, in verse, verse one, chapter three, wake up and strengthen 
That's what Jesus is calling us to do. So what do we need to do? We're dying, we're dried. I recognize that why I unplug. What do we need to do? We need to wake up and we need to strengthen ourselves, right? This is not over. Friends, don't give up. Don't give up. Because of your dryness, because of your discouragement, don't give up. Wake up and strengthen. Tonight, what is this? April 5th, April 5th, the Lord is sounding an alarm by the Spirit of God through the preaching of his word that you hear tonight to hear this word. He wants you to know, hey, wake up. My daughter, my son, who I've called, wake up and strengthen yourself. You are, you are drying up. I have life for you. Wake up tonight. Take this as a call from the Lord. What is at stake is so great. And then look, he doesn't just leave it as strengthen. I mean, what does that mean? How do we strengthen? Then in verse two, he gives these three ways of how we are strengthened, what that means, what it means to be strengthened. It's verse three. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Right there, he tells us. So he says, wake up and strengthen yourself. Well, how do I strengthen myself? You remember then what you received and heard. You keep it and you repent. We remember, we keep it, we repent. That's how we strengthen this connection we have to God. We go back and we look at his word and we say, man, I have got to remember who God is and who he says I am. Church, you have got to be in here so that you can remember who God is and who he says I am. And you apply that to all of the lies in your life. And you say, this is who Jesus is and this is who I am. And I apply that and I remember that this is what you said about me and then I apply that and I, and I keep that principle and then I change my mind, I repent from that. And so, so if pornography is something that you look to for satisfaction, then you remember that, wait, my God is better than that. What God has called me in an intimacy with him through the Holy Spirit is better than that. And so I remember that and then I keep that and I'm obedient to that and I walk that out one day at a time and I say, you know what? I'm not gonna choose that for my gratification. I'm gonna choose God's way because it's better. And then I slowly have this repentance, this change of mind. We, we compromise in relationships and instead of compromising in relationships, we remember, no, Jesus is better. What he has for me is better so I don't need to compromise in this relationship because what he has is better for me and I trust in that and I remember God's truth and I'm gonna stay, I'm gonna stay solid with that today and I'm gonna repent and I'm gonna change my mind and change my ways to not compromise in relationships or gosh, his view or his value of me. I'm gonna remember who the God of the universe, my creator, I'm gonna remember what he says about me. To my sisters in this room, I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember what, what the God of the universe says. He says I'm beautiful and why he says I'm beautiful because my beauty comes from the fact that he is the inherent creator of me who has given me that rather than what the world says is beautiful or what I should look like or what I should weigh or what I should wear. I'm gonna remember what God says about who I am as his daughter. And, and for the brothers in this room, what God says about who I am as his son and where my masculinity comes from, that I am a son of the king and that I've been given a task to go speak order into chaos, not add to the chaos of the lies of our world. And I'm gonna find my confidence in who he says about me. And we remember it and we keep it and we repent and we change our minds on those things. And how we see money 
in light of who God is, and we remember that, and how we see joy and our source for joy, that he is our source for joy, not these other things we chase, and how we see fear, that, that he is awesome and powerful, and he is worthy of our fear, and is the source of all wisdom, but not the things that we become anxious about, and that sneak up and rob us of life because we live in fear because we think that the anxieties in front of us are bigger than our powerful God. We, we think that and we walk into these situations where we're worrying and what if this and what if that and this fear that drives us and this fear that paralyzes us and what's happened? We've forgotten. We've forgotten who our Father is. And so how do we strengthen? We remember who our Father is. He is bigger than our anxieties and what's in front of us. And even the pain that is going to be in front of us, because we're promised that, that he will still be enough through that. And we follow in that truth, and we repent, and we change our minds in that way. Uh, we're about to sing a song uh, here in just a second. The band's going to come up, and I, I love that they chose a song. It's um, pulled from Psalm 118. Actually, Jeffrey, will you throw up the lyrics of just right off the beginning, the first slide? This is a psalm of David, right? And, and in it, David is telling his soul, Right? Praise the Lord, O my soul, O and all my inmost being. What's happening here is David, the psalmist, is saying, he's telling his heart, which is forgetful and wanders and forgets. He's telling his heart, remember, praise the Lord, O my soul. He's telling his soul, soul, you're so forgetful. Remember, remember who God is. Remember how he's good, remember and praise him and we rejoice and we celebrate. And so let's be people who do that. Let's be people who in our worship say, God, would you help me to remember you? Would you help me to keep your word and remembering that you're better and follow that? And I would repent. I would have my mind changed so I might look more and more like you. Let me pray over you and then we're gonna continue in worship and we're gonna respond to this through worship. Father, Thank you for being so good to us, God. Um, you love us so well, Lord, and you call us out so, uh, so accurately, certainly for my heart and my soul, um, as, a, as a man who is prone to wander and as a man who's prone to, for any, any of these reasons, disconnect from you. Tonight, Lord, would, we, would tonight be a night of reconnecting to you the vine, Lord, and we are the branches that we might bear fruit. You tell us in John 10, 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus, you say, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That is what you're offering, Father, and we're grateful, Lord. We're so grateful for that. Would we worship you, not just in song at, at the end of this time, but would we worship you with our lives, would our lives be a response of this relationship we have that you would wake us up, that we would heed the Holy Spirit's call through the preaching of the word of God, be reminded through singing of how good you are, that tonight we would get to turn towards you. And that we would know the God we're turning towards is not a God who has his arms folded because we're not good enough. It's a God who knows where we're at. And because of Christ's perfection, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we get to approach you like a son to his father like a loving son to his loving, loving father. Lord, would that be the position of our heart? Would we run towards you because of the gospel? That because of your death, burial, and resurrection, those who put their faith in you can sit confidently with you 
can connect tonight with you. And then tomorrow morning, as the enemy tries to steal, kill, and destroy, and distract, and disconnect, tomorrow morning, Lord, in the name of Jesus, would we say, no, we're gonna remember you, Father, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. And would this be the song of our life that's sweet and full of joy and glorifying to you? That's what we desire. So my friends in this room who have not yet put their faith, Lord, would they get to sit and see a God who loves them, knows their pain, and loves them. Meet us in this place in the name of Jesus. Amen.